This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 169, how artificial intelligence can help the future you live longer and prosper with our guest, Harry Glorickian. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication leadership learning lab. This is your host, Greg Gazin. For over two and a half decades, Harry Glorickian, healthcare entrepreneur, author, podcaster, and company leader, has been at the intersection of the fast-moving science and business of healthcare and biotechnology. He's always been at the forefront, helping invest in and grow innovative healthcare companies that are tackling groundbreaking areas such as precision medicine and the human genome. Whether growing and selling his own consulting company, Scientia Advisors, or an entrepreneur in residence at GE Healthcare, or as a general partner at Scientia Ventures, Harry's insatiably curious mind has led him to explore and tackle all sides of healthcare and biotechnology innovation, and has always found himself at the vanguard of their cutting edge technologies. As a recognized thought leader, Harry has spoken at industry conferences and seminars all over the world, and is regularly interviewed in and quoted by major media outlets. If that's not enough, Harry is the host of his own self-titled podcast series, The Harry Glorickian Show. And finally, Harry is the author of Moneyball Medicine, Thriving in the New Data-Driven Healthcare Market, and the diagnostics textbook, Commercializing Novel IVDs, A Comprehensive Manual for Success. And of course, his latest book that we're here to talk about today, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, stress less, and live longer, which is something I think we all want to hear about today. Ari Glurikian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This intro is just a sliver of your in-depth CV and your series of accomplishments. Just to get to know you a little bit better, I understand that your incredible journey started when you were a teenager, when your boss at the time had invented some type of analytical device. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what was it that got you in to zero in on AI healthcare and biotech? I think I was 19. I was in college. So I had a, uh, a job at a, uh, call it a computer educational company that, you know, they basically were like, I think the analogy for anybody who's older would be computer data corporation that would teach courses everywhere. And it was my first introduction to, you know, computer systems and God, we were actually building them from scratch. Um, and I was selling them on the side. Ironically, he had started to talk to me about, well, you know, there's multiple ways you can use these computational systems. One of them is uh, card counting. And I was like, <laughs> oh, Jesus, because because he had done very well in uh, expanding on the mathematical formulas for card counting that you could do in your head. And, uh, but he was showed me a shoe. You could input numbers in with your toes and the system would respond on your heel. And that was one thing. And I was like, wow, that's sort of interesting. Right. And it would predict whether you should stay or hold or hit or whatever. And then he showed me, he said, what's the only game that you can win most of the time in uh, Vegas? And I was like, oh, I have no idea. The house always wins. But then he goes, roulette. And I was like, roulette. And he said, yeah, because it's based on physics. And so if you know how fast the wheel is turning and you know how fast the ball is turning, you can cal calculate the trajectory of, you know, where the ball would fall and plus or minus a certain amount and so on. And 
they ended up building, you know, devices that could actually calculate all that. Of course, throughout my career, it seemed like this data thing became a recurring, how do you predict something that's going to happen or with increase your confidence? Over my career, things kept popping up that kept driving me in this direction. And then a few things happened with the Affordable Care Act uh, here in the U.S. that caused the whole system to move to digitization that I was like, okay, it's time to write a few books because this world of mine is, is going to get rocked by this technological shift. Now, when I hear about AI or when I hear the term AI, the first thing that just pops into my head, of course, given my age, is how. The HAL 9000 from 2001, A Space Odyssey, Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons, and then, of course, Commander Data, the android from Star Trek. But when I think of AI as a technology, I keep thinking patterns, algorithms, machine learning. So could you maybe share with the audience, share with us a little bit about what really is AI and what isn't it? So when I think about the term AI, right, in some ways I get a little bothered by it because it's in the grand sense, it's meaningless. It's basically a toolbox of different techniques that you would use or approaches that you would use is to solve a particular problem that you're interested in, right? Um, whether it's machine learning or deep learning, generative GANs uh, to create adversarial networks, right? You're using different forms of artificial intelligence or the toolbox of artificial intelligence to perform a task that would be typically, some of them would be done by a human, but the machine can do, do it repetitively over and over and over again. And people are using it in their daily lives all the time. Uh, if you think about when you're asking Google a question, you know, there's an artificial intelligence engine back there that's helping get you to the answer that it thinks is most appropriate for you. Or when you speak to Alexa or Siri, uh, there's a you know artificial intelligence engine back there trying to interpret what you're saying and get you an appropriate response. So those would be two examples that people might be able to resonate with them a little bit better. So Watson, for example, the computer that played Jeopardy, is that just a computer or is that an example of an AI device? It's a suite of sort of artificial intelligence technologies, right, that was developed by IBM. Ideally, Watson was designed to be a cognitive computing system, meaning it was intended to sort of simulate human thought processes and learn from experiences rather than simply follow a predetermined program set of instructions. So it's capable of understanding, interpreting natural language, analyzing it, looking at large amounts of data, and then providing insights and recommendations. The irony was... <laughs> They started to make claims about it, that it could do certain things that you, when you looked at it, you're like, wait a minute, this was not designed to do that. <laughs> you know, the problem with AI is you can't say, oh, it's commander data and it can sort of do everything. That's not the case. Like you've got to design it to do something. And then when you try to make the assumption that you can just twist it and use it someplace else, that, that assumption is just you're asking for trouble. Yeah. Let's move over to your, your niche area, healthcare, biotech. Of course, when we think healthcare, we think about what the world's gone through in the past two and a half, almost three years. 
we got vaccines in record time compared to the past where it's taken decades or more to do so. So I'm curious, Harry, in what ways do you think AI played a role in this? And really, has the pandemic pushed that development of some of these technologies, do you think? I would say that things were happening in the background without you know, the average person realizing it. So I'll give you an example is when we sequenced uh, SARS, when it came out, it took us three months of highly qualified people knowing what they were doing, you know, grinding through this to come out with the first sequence of SARS. When COVID hit, the technology had already advanced, you know, well enough that we were able to sequence COVID in 48 hours. So 48 hours versus three months. Wow. Part of that is, was the machines, the chemistry, but also it's, you know, you need the computational chops, right? And that to, to do all that, and that's just gotten faster and better and artificial intelligence plays a role there. Now, also on the chemistry side of making the vaccines with mRNA, because it's modular, we were able to generate the first vaccines we wanted to test 48 hours after that. So from the minute we got COVID, 48 hours, we have the sequence, 48 hours later, we have the first things we want to test. Now, from where I come from, that is like mind-bogglingly fast. And then the rest of it was running many processes in parallel, taking lots and lots of risk that if the vaccine works, you got to manufacture it. And so manufacturing while testing was happening in parallel if you were leading one of these organizations normally, you'd never do that, right? You wouldn't build your manufacturing facility before you know the thing worked. Right. There was a lot of parallel risk taken so that if it did work, you could be manufacturing in no time. And so from sequencing it to having a vaccine, it was about nine months, which it's just a blazing fast uh, when you think about how we normally do things in the world of healthcare or drug development. Well, so I mean, that's in research and development and, and checking, you know, looking to new things like vaccine. What does AI look like in our day-to-day healthcare system? What are some of the things that are being used or what are some of the ways that it's actually being used? So I, I would say that probably the area that has probably been most affected or should be most affected by this is anything that involves imaging. So think of x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, uh, ultrasounds, you can use or hospital systems can implement uh, the use of AI to look at those images uh, for different purposes. Uh, I know of one at Geisinger where they're using it for like looking at people, you know, when they they fall in and hit their head, um, it will automatically look for bleeds in the brain. Let's say there's a hundred scans uh, you know, the system will automatically say, hey, uh, number 90 should actually be number one because this person has a serious problem right now and they should be prioritized. And so the system will automatically do that as opposed to wait for the human being to get to number 90 and realize that, you know, two hours is gone, has gone by and, and something hasn't happened. Or there's a number of FDA cleared image analytic systems for pathology. Let's say you have a tumor, they take the biopsy and they're running it on the system. The system can identify or point out things to the pathologist much faster than, say, the pathologist would on their own. And so if I give you some sort of rough statistics, if you look at some of these systems, 
The pathologist on their own is about, you know, 80% in the 80s accuracy. The machine on their own is in the 80s. But the machine plus the pathologist, you know, you get into the 93 to 95 percentile range. And so you can see that man and machine together get you much faster and farther along than one or the other by themselves. Imagine, and this exists today, I can give you a portable ultrasound and you've never been trained on how to take an ultrasound. And the system says, you know, move a little to the right. Nope, move up a little bit, move a little to the left. And when the scan is done, it's equivalent to a trained ultrasound technician because AI was able to help you manipulate the system to get a optimal result. Uh, That certainly helps with the bottleneck. It seems like we've come a long way from printing out those giant x-rays and putting them on the big, I guess, the light box, and then having the waiting, you know, a couple of hours until the doctor would have an opportunity to look at it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, think about it with if I can take an image of your eye, um, which I I just dropped a podcast on ophthalmology, or you're doing an x-ray, or you're in a dentist's office, or, or, you know, think of any one of the examples And before the person has even looked at it, the system has looked at it, highlighted what's important, maybe even like suggested the diagnosis and eventually can suggest the treatment. So by the time the human gets to it, it's like, I don't want to say the ready-made meal, but it's pretty far down the processing line. So you save time, you save money, you increase the accuracy of the diagnosis, and maybe even because of the ability to understand the most optimal treatment, you're able to get the patient the best treatment. And so therefore, it's sort of save time, cost, money, and anguish. Incredible. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about how much data is actually needed to keep processing and then also how much data is generated. It's it's almost mind-boggling. Yeah, we, we do generate you know, quite a bit of data. I mean, compared to like the Department of Defense or anything, it's actually not a lot, but we do generate a lot of data. And, you know, you can just see where we are dependent on the human brain in healthcare. And the human brain can only handle so much. The machine can handle a lot more data, a lot more inputs. The two together, I think, work really well. I mean, I'll give you another example, which is we have systems in the intensive care units and, you know, there's a million beeps and bops and boops that are happening there. The machine will actually be able to highlight for you, hey, the person in bed number three, there's a high probability they're going to crash in the next 48 to 72 hours. You should, you may want to do something. Humans don't have that predictive capability. Imagine you can actually stop someone from crashing because you get that insight from the system that tells you that something is going wrong. Yeah, or even indicate or even identify someone who could be predisposed to a certain type of cancer. I read that in your book about the discovering the link between breast cancer and the BRCA1 mutation in patients. I thought that was phenomenal because I actually know some someone that had been discovered to have that BRCA gene. And uh, she was helped, sadly, uh, one of her siblings, by the time they discovered the 
the gene, it was a little bit too late, although it did help her get on to a clinical trial uh, first time, but unfortunately it already gone to stage four. Maybe can you, you could share a little bit about that link discovery? Yeah, so so BRCA, the BRCA gene, that there was a, a, a large effort to sequence that by a company called Myriad Genetics. They have the most comprehensive understanding of that big gene. And they spent, uh, I think it was about $100 million, uh, slowly but surely building out that data set uh, to understand the corresponding nature between the gene and would you develop cancer. Now, there's only like, I think it's in the 60 percentile range, 60, 65 percentile range that you will. So it's not a absolute. So women have to make that tough decision of, you know, what do they do? Many of them, you know, do choose to have a mastectomy or have their ovaries removed or so on and so forth when they know that they're positive for that. But it, it is not a 100% certainty that they will develop cancer. But the, you know, one of the things I cover in the book is, you know, a woman has just delivered a baby boy. They come into the room and they say, we're doing a, a newborn sequencing project, cost nothing. Uh, would you be okay if we sequenced your baby boy? She says, sure. So they come back, I think it was two, three weeks later, and they say, um, we found something, uh, but it won't affect him. He's positive for BRCA. Now, all of a sudden, it's, well, he didn't just get that from nowhere. Somebody is a carrier. And so they ended up testing all the females in the family. And lo and behold, the mother has BRCA. Wow. When I interviewed her for the book, I said, did you like getting that information? And she's like, well, it put us on a you know medical odyssey, but I rather know and be proactive and be able to do something about it than have it sneak up on me you know, without me knowing, but we didn't find out by sequencing her. We found out by sequencing her newborn baby. The technology is getting incredibly good at identifying these things or seeing things sneaking up on you that you can get ahead of. And so I I think about the age we're in as we're going to preventative care, a preemptive care, as opposed to sick care. Well, I don't have a choice, but I have to do something now because I'm already like so far down the road as opposed to, well, we're using these AI systems and different technologies to identify a disease that's coming uh, much earlier. And typically, if you look at the stats, we're much better at treating things when we catch them early than when we catch them late. Incredible. It looks like there's AI that's built into things like the Fitbit or the Apple Watch. Maybe you can share a little bit about what are some of the devices where AI is already in existence and maybe even in particular some that we may not even realize. Well, I think there's some form of AI in, in all of these on the back end, right, uh, that are, that's crunching through the data that we may or may not be aware of, which is actually ideal because I really I don't need to think about AI in the background. I just want the answer so that I can go and do something with the, the output, right? But if you think about, you know, for example, the, the watch, the Apple watch having fall detection, there's an algorithm that's sitting there and, you know, trying to figure out like, was that a fall or not a fall? Okay, wait, this seems like they fell. Uh, is the person moving? Well, no, they're not moving. And I'm looking at a heart rate and I might be looking at other inputs that the watch is looking for. And um, this is not looking good. Let me call 911. 
And so the system automatically calls 911. You know, there's a story about how the system calls 911 first, relays the location to the 911. And then the second thing it does is it calls the gentleman's son to let them know that there's been a fall, that they've called 911. And all of this is happening in the background, right? And so the gentleman wakes up at the hospital, doesn't even know that all this happened. That's a great use of, of a, you know, different forms of AI to go through a series of, of things that probably saved that person's life. And that's just, you know, one example. Yeah, I have a recent example. A friend of mine had read an article I had written, the review of the Fitbit Charge 5, and she had decided to buy one for basically a Black Friday special. A couple of weeks ago, it awoke her in the middle of the night. Her heart rate was over 160, and now she's on on medications. And so she's actually very grateful for it. So there's another example. There's always an article of somebody waking up in the middle of the night because their their watch told them that something is off, and then they went had a check, and they have AFib or something of that nature. You know, there's a a, a small device from a company called Cardia. Maybe the thickness of a credit card. And it's got two probes on it. And you put your two fingers on each side of the probe. And when they first came out with it, it was F- it's FDA cleared and it will do an ECG of your heart. And it would do like a single ECG. And now it's up to, it will look at six different parameters of your heart. And all they've done is improve the software. You know, this is 80 bucks. You can have this at home. So if you think about a wireless blood pressure cuff, your wireless scale, a you know little tiny ECG like that, you can pretty much do whatever the doctor does when you walk into their office at home. Um, and even if you just did it, say, once a month uh, and sent it to your doctor or walked in with the information, he or she would be able to manage you a lot better than the one time you walk in there and do all those measurements that one time and they're supposed to figure out how you've been doing over the, over the last year. Right, because the doctor asks you questions. Sometimes you just can't remember. So, of course, the data is on the device. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, you know, I take my, you know, I take different measurements regularly, and I can walk into my doctor and be like, "Hey, here's the last six months, nine months, one year," and he can look at it and be like, "Okay, everything looks good," as opposed to that one measurement he's going to do when I'm there. It's unrealistic to expect you know that person to be omnipotent and, and be able to <laughs> see what's inside of you, right? Technology gives us that edge. At the same time, the doctor might tell you ABC and you're saying, no, doctor, my Apple Watch says DEF. <laughs> well, I, I hate saying it, but these, so, I, and I think we're, you know, we're right there, it just hasn't been fully implemented. But Imagine you're, you've got your scale, you've got your blood pressure cuff, you've got your ECG, you've got your watch, and you get up in the morning and, you know, Alexa or Siri or a device like it says, hey, you know, we're noticing that your, your blood pressure's up, your weight's up, or you didn't sleep well last night, or did you take your medication? How are you feeling? What's going on? And the system is interacting with you based on the data that it's getting from you in real time. Oh, yeah, I forgot to take my blood pressure med or something of that nature. The system can actually help maintain your health at a, in a much tighter way than the doctor's not calling you that day, right? They have no idea that you fell out of, out of whack. 
this technology can be implemented today. There are systems now called remote patient monitoring systems that doctors will interact with the company. Uh, the company will scan their electronic medical records. It'll say, hey, you know, John has congestive heart failure. Mary has diabetes. Okay, different boxes of technologies will go to these patients. All they have to do is plug in a cellular hub. And then every time they take a measurement with the devices that are provided, the data goes to the doctor's office and the doctor can set up alerts that when people fall out of this range, contact, you know, alert the nurse so the nurse can call them. If it's this far out of range, contact me and I'll call them. But now all of a sudden, the doctor can take care of more patients and monitor them closer than the once a year that they come visit the doctor. Everything becomes part of your, I guess, wellness ecosystem then. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody that wants to get sick or show up at the doctor and they go, holy moly, your blood pressure is off the chart. we got to get you on medication tomorrow. If you see it creeping up, you're being empowered with knowledge to do something about it. Now, if you choose to do nothing, that's your own choice. But I don't think most people willingly <laughs> want high blood pressure and be on medication, right? Yeah, that's true. Just sometimes they find that life gets in the way and they'll just say, oh, okay, I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to do this. I'll just grab a quick stack here and there. And sometimes, unfortunately, they only start doing something when something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if, if you can see the cliff, yeah, most people try to avoid the cliff, right? Some people will go right off the edge and, you know, good for them, I guess. But if it's someone like me, I'm like, oh, this is not looking good. I should actually do something about this. It's that the tiny leak, the little check engine light comes on and you know that it's the old commercial of pay me now or pay me a lot more later. Right. So people can also get a lot more help from reading your book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. And I'm curious, Harry, in what ways do you hope people will think differently after reading this book? So, you know, I guess on the smallest scale, I, I hope that people will incorporate one thing into their daily lives that would, you know, then will make a meaningful difference, like whether it's monitoring their sleep or, you know, being able to continuously check their blood sugar based on what they eat and then changing their diet um, or just changing their exercise habits. I mean, you know, one thing would be huge, right? Because I can't do much more than that. But on the grander scheme, I think it would give them a broader understanding of what's happening, where, where are the different technologies and how can they make a difference in their lives, the lives of their loved ones. And if they do get sick uh, or have a chronic disease that, you know, these things can really help keep them much more balanced than not integrating any of these things into their lives at all. And the book is fairly comprehensive. And in fact, a lot of what we were talking about earlier, a lot of that is is covered in the book. I, I'm just wondering, in one of your chapters, I think it might have been chapter two, you specifically talked about how you could take VR, virtual reality, which is really more of a techie type thing, to more of a mainstream by making changes to the design. And I'm curious from your perspective, what would that look like and how would that help us make life better for us? How would it make us healthier and happier? 
Well, if you think about, uh, so there is this whole segment called a digital therapeutic, right? So uh, to define a digital therapeutic, think about it this way. So I have a condition, I take a pill, right? And I'm supposed to have some sort of outcome because of that pill that I take, uh, because somebody ran a clinical trial. So imagine what if I could, uh, I'll give you a a real example. Uh, There are a number of them now that are FDA cleared. What if your child has ADHD and instead of giving them Adderall or Ritalin, I could prescribe them a video game and they could play that video game. As they play that video game, their ADHD gets more in line and they learn how to concentrate better uh, without taking any of the drugs and having any of the side effects. So that product has already been FDA cleared. A child can be prescribed that video game um, and people are using it uh, regularly. Now, there are different products that are approved for pain, for uh, drug abuse. There are different products now being designed where it is able to work on you from a cognitive behavioral perspective, where the AI system understands what part of the brain it needs to poke at to strengthen or help train that would result in a positive therapeutic outcome without having to tra- take a drug. Nice. You also mentioned in one of the chapters, I think it's, I think it's in the same chapter, about perhaps modifying a device that you could use while you're doing yoga. So there's a number of different devices now, especially ones that have camera systems in there or even you know certain wearables that can tell you if you're doing the posture correctly. So, so you know, ultimately, if you think about it right, if you think about uh, physical therapy, the most important thing is you do the exercise that they're telling you the, the right way, right? So imagine that the system is looking at you, you can tell, you know, no, 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 lift your, you know, lift your arm a little bit higher, right? Or, you know, straighten your back a little more, or it's almost like having a coach there, but it's not a human coach per se. That's helping you maintain or achieve the right level of therapy, whether it be exercise like yoga or actual physical therapy for an ailment, that the system is sort of coaching you along as you're going forward. Now, of course, we're talking about all the benefits here. I'm just kind of curious, what's the dark side of all this? Where where can things go wrong? I'm thinking about even data, right? The quality of the data, the integrity, even the timeliness of it sometimes. So where are things that we do need to be, what are ways that we need to be cautious about when we're looking at this? I mean, I always think that privacy is probably the where people should be most concerned. Who are they sharing the data with? Dealing with Fitbit, you know, you have to, that's going to Google, right? You have to be comfortable with that or their privacy policy. You know, I have my preferences of sort of sticking with Apple, but that's because of their privacy policy and how they present it. But those are the sorts of things that they need to be aware of um, or be cautious of. If you have a Roomba in your house, you're giving away so much privacy that what I'm talking about on your Fitbit is is (laughs) a much smaller problem than uh, the camera that's roaming around your house filming everything that's in your house. I read about that recently. <laughs> so, you know, when people talk about privacy, I'm like, really? You're you're worried about this one little gadget when, you know, you're telling Facebook everything about yourself? You know, it's not that it's not a problem. It's absolutely a problem. When you compare it to what people are exposing themselves to, people do not fully appreciate how quickly 
the technology is advancing. Most of the stuff I'm looking at, you can measure them in order of magnitude improvements. But all of a sudden, you can do things that you couldn't do before. And it opens up whole other opportunities that you couldn't even have conceived of the year before. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, though, because some people still don't have a cell phone, which caused a problem even for vaccine proof, where they couldn't show proof of vaccination. In your opinion, if they're starting today, they've, they've read your book, they realized maybe I need to do something, where would they start? And how would you get them to embrace this and have them realizing that this advancement in technology is, is no longer a fantasy? A wireless scale, right? If you see the line going up and to the right, you know that something is not, maybe you want to do something about it. Or if you, if you have a history in your family of heart disease, why don't you just start with a wireless blood pressure cuff or you know one of these ECGs that you can have at home? If you really want to be more advanced, right, you can get, uh, or if you think your, your family has a history of diabetes, you get a continuous glucose monitor and you can see how different foods are uh, affecting you and you can make moderate changes in what you ingest that might push off you know, you developing full-blown diabetes sooner than you'd like. So I always tell people, like, try and do something that is more relevant to you or your family history. That would probably have the biggest impact. Um, but even if you just want to get more energy in your day, monitoring your sleep. I mean, I'm monitoring, me and my wife are monitoring our sleep every morning. We look at the numbers and help make changes that if I sleep better, I know the next day I have a lot more energy. I'm not as irritable, think clearer. So I would tell someone, look at different aspects of what you'd like to improve. And I, I'm almost willing to bet you that there's a, you know, a technology that you can incorporate for a reasonable amount of money that would help you take control of that and improve that in your life. I think that's sage advice. It's a great way to start. Baby steps, looking at your history to start and just looking at ways of, of feeling better. We have just barely scratched the surface in terms of we, what we can talk about and even in terms of what's included in your book. So Harry, could you perhaps tell us where people can find the book and if someone is interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So the book, Amazon is the easiest place. So if, you, if, you, you know, if anybody types in the future you and my last name, Glorikian, G-L-O-R-I-K-I-A-N, it should pop right to the top. Easiest place to see all my stuff um, is my website, which is www.glorikian.com. Um, and I'm like on all the social platforms that you need to be when you write a book. Pretty easy to find. I'm finding that the book is a good read for everyone and for anyone. You don't necessarily need to be a techie. There's some technical aspects in it. But what I really like, a couple of things I really like about the book is that you've got, well, it's a lot, but there's 50 pages of references. So if there's an area that you want to look at, that's quite a bit. <laughs> I'm so used to talking to people in the world of healthcare that I'm always like, okay, we got to have references. This cannot be, you know, pulled out of thin air. It's got to be based in concrete reality the average person feels more comfortable with what they're reading. But somebody who's in the professional world that isn't even aware of some of this stuff, by the way, there's a lot of professionals that are not aware of half the stuff you and I just talked about. 
that would be like, oh, where's the reference for that? And they'll want to go read about it so that they can learn about it themselves or tell their own patients. Harry Glarikian, the book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>